Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, welcome to episode 37 of Destination Disaster. I'm your host, Devin Carney. This week, we're going to be talking about the massive explosion that occurred in the port city of Beirut, Lebanon back in August of 2020. This explosion remains one of, if not the largest non-nuclear blasts that the modern world has witnessed. This episode is going to cover the history of Lebanon as a country, including the civil war that tore the country in half, and ultimately the corruption and sheer complacence that would lead to this explosion that would leave 218 dead, thousands injured, and hundreds of thousands homeless. Lebanon is home to a population of nearly 6 million and is situated in Western Asia, right on the Mediterranean Sea, and has served as a melting pot of civilization and culture for over 3,000 years. Lebanon has served as a place of refuge for those escaping religious persecution from other Middle Eastern countries. Due to this, Lebanon has been marked by several internal civil wars that have taken its toll on both its inhabitants and its economy. One such war, the Lebanese Civil War, occurred between 1975 and 1990 and left a scar in the country that is still felt to this very day. From 1975 until 1990, Lebanon endured a vicious and prolonged civil war. Beirut became the site where sectarian tensions and regional geopolitics became part of urban space. It resulted in profound divisions and changes in the geography of the city. In 1975, a few months into the civil war, the city of Beirut became the core of militia fighting. During the war, the city was partitioned by a green line which split Beirut into eastern and western sectors. Demographic redistributions took place. People moved from one side of the city to the other along sectarian and political lines, with Christians settling mainly to the east and Muslims mainly to the west of the line. It is estimated that as a result of this civil war, 120,000 lives were lost and an exodus of nearly 1 million people from Lebanon was recorded. As the country emerged out of the civil war, A focus on the central district in Lebanon took precedence and would be redeveloped to include designer stores, luxury apartments, and a real lack of sustainability. Due to the decision to redevelop the central hub of Beirut, this would leave many who did not live in this part of the city with crumbling infrastructure and no government support. This would become the main focal point for internal conflict in 2015 and 2019. During these years, this area would become the fulcrum of public anti-government protests. Until the interruption of the coronavirus pandemic, protesters took over several buildings and squares in the city center. They campaigned against government corruption and, among many other things, for the right of access to public services and resources. 
In addition, they called for government accountability amid crumbling infrastructure and services, the loss of public space, and environmental decline. I'm not sure if you're beginning to notice a common theme here, but the government officials don't listen to their people and allow them to fight for survival while the corruption runs rampant through each government agency and allows the country to collapse into squalor. As we transition into the main part of the story, you're going to notice that the port also suffered from severe mismanagement and corruption, which is what would lead to the explosion. The port of Beirut itself has been around in some form or other for over 3,000 years, watching civilizations be born, grow and prosper, and eventually become one with the earth. The port of Beirut has a history that can be traced all the way back to the 15th century BC. This port witnessed the rise and fall of several civilizations around the Mediterranean Sea, from the pharaohs to the Phoenicians, all the way to the Roman Empire, this port has truly served as a gate to the Middle East. Archaeological excavations in the downtown port of Beirut have uncovered layers of artifacts from ancient Phoenician, Greek, Roman, Arab, and Ottoman cultures. First mentioned in Egyptian writings dating to the 15th century BC, the port of Beirut has been inhabited since that time. In 1994, a dig proved that one of the city's modern streets still follows an ancient Greek and Roman road. Beirut comes from the Canaanite Beirut, describing the underground water table still in use. The port of Beirut was given the status of Roman colony in 14 BC, and it had fashionable suburbs during Roman times. The Roman city was destroyed by earthquakes and a devastating tidal wave in 551, and it remained in ruins until conquered by Muslims in 635 AD. Muslims reconstructed the city into a walled garrison with an insignificant role until the 10th century. The port of Beirut was taken by the Crusaders in 1110 and made a fief of the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem. Under that rule, the port of Beirut enjoyed thriving trade with Italian cities. The Mamluks ended the Crusaders' rule in 1291 when the port of Beirut was Syria's chief port for Venetian spice merchants. Passed into Ottoman rule in 1516, the port of Beirut's commercial importance declined, but by the 17th century, it became an important exporter of Lebanese silk to Europe. Though technically under the rule of the Ottomans, the port of Beirut fell to Ma'an and Shi'ab emirs for decades during the 18th century. The port of Beirut suffered greatly during the Russo-Turkish War and declined the status of village of 6,000 souls. What we know now is the port of Beirut would be constructed following the Industrial Revolution in Europe in the mid-1800s. This is the point at which Beirut started to become a safe haven for refugees. The surrounding city grew to a population of 15,000 and would only continue to explode in growth through the coming decades. By 1900, the city would have a population of 120,000, and growth only continued as the port continued to expand. The port is located centrally to the city of Lebanon, and would serve as the dividing line during the civil war that occurred between 1975 and 1990, known as the Green Line. Following the war, corruption would only continue to become more serious. The port of Beirut is overseen by a hodgepodge of government and security agencies with overlapping mandates. Technically, the port falls under the Ministry of Public Works and Transportation and the Ministry of Finance as well as a body established in 1993 with a mouthful of a name, the Temporary Committee for Management and Investment of the Port of Beirut. Despite its temporary status, it is still in operation, though very little of what it does is subject to any scrutiny. It does not publish financial statements, and its board is appointed by the country's political leaders. A host of civilian entities also operates at the port within the various government ministries and committees, in addition to security and intelligence agencies, including the Lebanese Armed Forces. There have been several investigations, with some even captured on video, of the severe corruption that is occurring, which includes everyone from port management down to the individual customs officers scanning cargo as it enters the port. I am truly not surprised something of this magnitude occurred, mainly due to the lack of both oversight 
and complacency at the security checkpoint. The ammonium nitrate that was being stored at the port had been there for several years and is still unknown as to why it even ended up in the port of Beirut. The story begins all the way back in November of 2013 when the Moldovan flagged ship, the Rosas, was ordered to dock in Beirut. The Rosas arrived in Beirut carrying 2,750 tons of high-density ammonium nitrate. According to the ship's captain, Boris Prokoshev, the Rosas docked in Beirut after a Russian national described as the ship's owner or operator ordered him to make a last-minute stop in Beirut to pick up additional cargo to be used to pay for safe passage through the Suez Canal. The Rosas was set to carry the additional cargo, seismic survey equipment, which included trucks and was estimated to weigh up to 160 tons from Beirut's port to Jordan. Experts have noted, however, that the Rosas was not a roll-on, roll-off ship and wouldn't have not usually been used to transport vehicles. Additionally, the ship was already at capacity. Indeed, while attempting to load the cargo, the ship's hatches covering the ammonium nitrate began to buckle under the cargo's weight because the ship's maximum capacity had already been exceeded. When the ship docked in Beirut's port, the ship was also found to not be seaworthy. Making matters worse, there were also outstanding debts against the ship causing it to be impounded by Lebanon's Enforcement Department on December 20th, 2013. The investigation conducted by the Human Rights Watch is super thorough. For anyone that wants to read every single section of this investigation, I'll link it down in the show notes. It turns out that not only was the ship told to dock at the last minute in Beirut, but the cargo was also misidentified once customs officials began its categorization of said cargo once it was unloaded. If you are familiar with how ports work, Ships carry a bill of lading stating the cargo in which they are carrying, the amount of said cargo, the destination, and if there are any hazard classifications necessary. The manifest that was provided to customs officials included high-density ammonium nitrate weighed at 2,750.4 tons. The cargo manifest of the Rosas also confirms this amount. However, nearly two months later, a Lebanese maritime agent company named the National Trading and Shipping Agency identified the ammonium nitrate However, at this point, it was weighed at 2,755.5 tons. Was this due to the scales that hadn't been calibrated, untrained staff, or simple complacency? In addition to this miscalculation, the ammonium nitrate was also misidentified under the International Maritime Organization's Hazard Classification Guidelines. On the ship's manifest and bill of lading, it correctly identified the shipment as an IMO 5.1, which identifies it as an oxidizer. On the National Trading and Shipping Agency's paperwork, it misidentified the shipment as an IMO 5.0. On February 22, 2014, having been alerted the day before about the dangerous nature of the ammonium nitrate on board the ship by a customs official, the Manifest Department at the General Directorate of Customs sent a letter to the National Trading and Shipping Agency requesting the agency appear before the department to explain why they did not describe the nature of the cargo on the ship's unified list. In its response to the Manifest Department on February 28, 2014, the agency claimed that as far as they knew, the unified list only had to mention the quantity, weight, and destination country of the cargo and requested an exemption from the violation. They added that they provided a copy of the ship's transit manifest, which includes all the information about the ship's cargo, to the Customs Manifest Detachment. The head of the manifest department then asked the head of the Beirut Brigades, which is a security entity under the General Directorate of Customs and supervises the manifest detachment, whether the ship's transit manifest was shown to the Beirut Brigades and whether the manifest correctly identified the material on board as the customs law requires. The head of the Beirut Brigade reportedly refused to receive this request for information. The manifest department then escalated the issues to the Customs Regional Directorate of Beirut, who once again invited the Beirut Brigades to submit their required information. As we begin to focus more on the explosion itself, 
there were several attempts to have the ammonium nitrate removed due to the risk of an explosion. From 2014 up until a day before the explosion, the Ministry of Public Works and Transport sent nearly 20 letters urging for the removal of the ammonium nitrate that was being stored haphazardly in this poorly ventilated warehouse. It's evident that these requests went unanswered for over six years. For those of you who are unaware, ammonium nitrate is an incredibly strong oxidizer. Ammonium nitrate is a crystalline powder varying in color from almost white to brown. It is classified as an oxidizer and will accelerate burning when involved in a fire. Ammonium nitrate itself does not burn, but in contact with other combustible materials, it increases fire hazard and supports fire even in the absence of oxygen. When a fire or a heat source is sequestered in a closed container of ammonium nitrate, for example a tank or a shipping container, the reaction can transition to a violent explosion and a phenomenon known as a deflagration to detonation transition, or DDT. This is why the explosion was so violent. The warehouse in which this chemical was being stored was in poor condition, did not have adequate ventilation, and was unsecured. Prior to the explosion, there was a fire that broke out in Warehouse 12, which happened to store the ammonium nitrate, and right beside that highly reactive chemical was fireworks. Around 5.45 p.m. local time on August 4, 2020, a fire broke out in Warehouse 12 at the Port of Beirut. Warehouse 12, which was waterside and adjacent to the grain elevator, stored the ammonium nitrate that had been confiscated from the Rosas alongside a stash of fireworks. Yeah, you heard that. Fireworks. Around 5.55 local time, a team of nine firefighters and one paramedic, known as Platoon 5, was dispatched to fight the fire. On arrival, the fire crew reported there was something wrong, as the fire was immense and produced a crazy sound. The initial explosion, at about 6.07 local time, likely triggered by the stored fireworks, sent up a large cloud of smoke and a crackle of bright firework flashes, and heavily damaged the structure of Warehouse 12 itself, with a force equivalent to around 1.5 to 2.5 tons of TNT. Approximately 30 seconds later, all hell let loose as an explosion lit up the sky, engulfing much of the port, and sent a cloud of red smoke into the air around Beirut. This blast was felt over 150 miles away in Cyprus. The United States Geological Survey identified this blast as a magnitude 3.3 earthquake on seismic equipment in the region. In the ensuing blast, the lives of 218 were lost and over 7,000 were injured. Foreigners from at least 22 countries were among the casualties. Also, several United Nations naval peacekeepers who were members of the UN Interim Force in Lebanon were injured by the blast. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees reported that 34 refugees were among the dead and missing, and an additional 124 refugees were injured. At least 150 people became permanently disabled as a result of the explosion. All 10 members of Platoon 5 died at the scene of the blast. Nazar Najarian, the Secretary General of the Kataeb Party, died after sustaining severe head injuries. French architect Jean-Marc Bonfil died after sustaining serious injuries at his apartment in the East Village building in Mar Mikael. He had been live-streaming the warehouse fire on Facebook at the time. Lady Cochrane Sursak, philanthropist and member of the Sursak family, died on August 31st from injuries sustained from the blast. Due to the significance of this blast, over 300,000 people would be left homeless. In total, the damage would be an estimated 15 billion US dollars. There are several possible reasons as to why this disaster could have happened. But it is believed that port workers welding a repair on the warehouse doors where the ammonium nitrate was being stored 
potentially ignited the fireworks being stored right by the incredibly reactive ammonium nitrate. Warehouses at the Port of Beirut were used to store explosives and chemicals including nitrates, common components of fertilizers, and explosives. The General Director of General Security, Major General Abbas Ibrahim, said that the ammonium nitrate confiscated from Rosas had exploded. The 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate was the equivalent to around 1,155 tons of TNT, or 4,830 gigajoules. The failure to remove the materials from the warehouse and relocate them was attributed to mismanagement of the port, corruption of the government, and an action to flag the registry's country and ship owner. The Lebanese Broadcasting Corporation International reported that, according to attendees of a higher defense council briefing, the fire was ignited by welders welding a door at the warehouse. A former port worker said that there was 30 to 40 nylon bags of fireworks inside Warehouse 12 that he had personally seen. An American diplomatic cable on August 7th said it remains unclear whether the fireworks, ammunition, or something else stored next to the ammonium nitrate might have been involved in worsening the warehouse fire and igniting the ammonium nitrate. A port worker said Warehouse 12 was not in regular use and that those in charge only used to open the warehouse to stack inside it materials confiscating upon judicial orders or perilous products, though he had not seen this to include any armaments. This right here, folks, is what sheer incompetence resembles. Storing fireworks next to a highly volatile chemical that is known to react when exposed to fire or heat. The people working in the port that day that died did not deserve this fate, nor did those who were injured. This could have been prevented, and it could have been done so years ago, when the Rosas landed in Beirut. Quite honestly, everyone that allowed the ammonium nitrate to be offloaded, up to those that ignored the request to have the chemical removed, should all be held liable for this disaster. The investigation into the explosion showed that corruption is still rampant through the government of Lebanon. The government formed an investigative committee led by Prime Minister Hassan Diab, which announced it would submit its findings to the Council of Ministers of Lebanon by August 11th. The committee includes the Justice, Interior, and Defense Ministers, and the head of the top four security agencies, the Armed Forces, General Security, Internal Security Forces, and State Security. The investigation was to examine whether the explosion was an accident or due to negligence, and if it was caused by a bomb or another external interference. President Michael Ayn rejected calls for an international probe despite demands from world leaders. On August 5th, the Council agreed to place 16 Beirut port officials who had overseen storage and security since 2014 under house arrest, overseen by the Army, pending the investigations into the explosions. In addition, the general manager of the port, Hassan Koryatim, and the former Director General of Lebanon's Customs Authority, Shafiq Mary, were also arrested. Later on August 17th, the incumbent Director General of Lebanon's Customs Authority, Badri Daher, was also arrested. Also, former ministers of both finance and public works were due to be interrogated by a judge appointed by the council. In the meantime, state prosecutor Ghassan Widat ordered a travel ban on seven individuals, including Koryatim, while acting Justice Minister Marid Claude Najim unsuccessfully demanded an international investigation into the blast. She also noted that this case is a chance for the Lebanese judiciary to prove they can do their jobs and win back the confidence of the people. On August 19th, a Lebanese judge ordered the arrests of more suspects over the explosion, bringing the total number of the accused to 25. The Lebanese judge Fadi Sawan, who had been responsible for the investigation, summoned former Minister of Transportation and Public Works Ghazi Aridi, Labor Ministers Ghazi Yaiter, Youssef Finianos, and Michael Najjar, General Director of the Lebanese State Security, Tony Saliba, Director General of Lebanon's Land and Maritime Division, Abdul Hafiz Al-Qaisi, and General Director of General Security, Major General Abbas Ibrahim. 
In September, Lebanon's state prosecution asked Interpol to detain two Russian citizens, the captain and the owner of Rosas, as its cargo of ammonium nitrate was blamed for the explosion. In January 2021, Interpol issued red notices against the two Russians as well as a Portuguese man. In December 2020, Lebanon's outgoing Prime Minister Diab and three former ministers were charged with negligence over the Port of Beirut explosion. The former ministers were former Finance Minister Ali Hassan Khalil, Ghazi Yaiter, and Yusuf Finianos, both former ministers of Public Works. Zaitar was Transport and Public Works Minister in 2014, followed by Finianos in 2016, who held the job until the beginning of 2020. Khalil was Finance Minister in 2014, 2016, and until 2020. On January 28, 2021, Syrian businessman George Haswani denied any links to the Beirut explosion. He told Reuters that he did not know anything about a company linked to the process of buying a shipment of chemicals that exploded. In an interview with Reuters at his home in Damascus, Haswani said that he resorted to the Cypriot company Interstatus to register his company, which is the same agent that registered the Savaro company and that the agency company had moved the registration site of the two companies to the same address on the same day. However, Haswani said he did not know anything about Savaro and that any links between it and his company are just a coincidence because the two companies have the same agent. As stated in previous reports, Reuters was unable to determine whether Haswani had anything to do with Savaro. Haswani said, I don't know what other companies are registered by the Cypriot company. Five or three or 70 more. It is a fabricated media whirlwind. We don't know about Savaro, and we hadn't heard about them before this. Interstatus did not respond to a request for comment. Marina Silu, the director of Interstatus Company, was listed in the registration documents of the company, Savaro, as the only owner and director of the company, but she denied that she was the real manager of the company. She told Reuters in mid-January 2021 that the beneficial of the company was another person whom she refused to identify. She added that Savaro was a dormant company that had never conducted business. Aswani said that he has not been contacted by any investigators from Lebanon or any other country regarding the explosion and that he will soon look to file a legal case in Paris against media reports linking him to the explosion. He continued, I am living my life normally and laughing because I am someone who knows well that I have nothing to do with this matter at all. Why would I worry? On April 15, 2021, six detained people were released, including two officers although they were not allowed to travel out of Lebanon. In September 2021, OCCRP published an investigation which linked Savaro Limited to a Ukrainian company trading chemicals, directed by Ukrainian citizen Volodymyr Verbono. The report also mentions that only 20% of the nitrate originally stored in the warehouse was actually left when it exploded, raising questions about what happened with the rest. On October 14, 2021, six people were killed and at least 30 injured in a gunfire exchange in Beirut during protests by members of the Shia, Amal, and Hezbollah outside the Justice Palace, which demanded an end to the investigations led by Judge Tarek Bitar, for they deemed him as too much centered on their political allies. On November 21, 2021, the BBC reported that legal groups representing victims of the blast had sent letters on three occasions to UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres requesting more information from UNIFIL, but had received no acknowledgement from the UN. On November 22, 2021, the Lebanese Foreign Minister Abdallah Boulahib announced that Lebanon received satellite images from Russia of the port that day from the blast in 2020. These were the first official images made available from any foreign government. Throughout 2022, the investigation has stalled. As of June 8, 2022, 
parliamentary immunity as well as outstanding complaints and other procedural roadblocks initiated by two members of parliament and former ministers continue to prevent significant progress in the case. It is quite possible that we will never fully know the true cause of what happened on that very day two years ago. What we do know is that the government has failed their people once again. I want to thank you for listening this week. If you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to rate it five stars and leave a review. Be sure to follow the show on both Instagram and Twitter, where you can find the latest updates regarding upcoming episodes and current events throughout the world. Until next week, this has been Destination Disaster. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 